This morning's reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." This is the word of the Lord. Hi, church. You guys okay? I miss you guys. I miss your faces. Um, can I just pray for us before we uh, dig in here? Um, Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, just the truths of um, that song, the truths of uh, the scripture that you've given us today, that you are merciful to us. Our Lord, help that to, um, to sit in our hearts as we make our way through this scripture, Lord, that you're merciful to us, that you love us, that you're for us. Um, Holy Spirit, we ask for your help, and we ask for you to speak to us this morning, Lord. Um, lift high the name of Jesus. May we um, just be enamored by him today. In your name, Lord. Amen. Um, cool. Hopefully you all have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, let me just remind you, the goal of this series is the goal, well, that we have every time we, we get together, and it's that you'd walk out these doors just enamored by Jesus. Um, you just, um, it's sit in your hearts, um, just how great he is, just how amazing he is, how much better he is. Um, that you and I would be more and more and more and more convinced, not just in our minds, but deeply in our hearts, that Jesus actually is better than anyone or anything else this world can offer. Um, Jesus is better. That's the, the theme of this, uh, this letter. Um, last week, the author was he, he's urging us to pay much closer attention to what God has spoken, lest we drift away. Um, he's speaking about Jesus there. We must pay much closer attention to Jesus lest we drift away, lest we neglect this great salvation, revert to our old ways. So remember, his audience is experiencing societal pressure and hardship and even persecution to neglect Jesus, to neglect the salvation that he brings, to pack it all in and to return back to their old ways. Um, it's, 
amazing that this ancient letter is so applicable to us um, because we experience that pressure as well, don't we? Um, that, that temptation is something that each of you will experience, that each of you are experiencing in your lives, to pack it in and to, to, to go back to our old ways. And I, I, I'm, I don't want to preach all of last week, but remember he looked at Psalm 8, and, and Psalm 8 points us to Genesis 128. It's essentially this promise that, that we are to rule over creation, that we are to have dominion over all of creation. Um, he's, he's playing on this struggle that, that we have because we don't see that playing out. We, 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 if anything, we've, creation rules over us. Um, if anything, no matter how good humanity gets, um, in the end, we all die. <laughs> we all suffer. Um, really, the, 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 um, the, the question is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for uh, uh, Psalm 8, Ephesians, um, uh, sorry, Genesis 1.28? The answer is yes, but that is in Jesus. So Jesus actually comes and fulfills Psalm 8. Our destiny is, is, is actually in him. Um, it, it's only because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf on the cross that, we, that Psalm 8 can be a reality for us. This, this future glory is for us. And Jesus opens up the way for us in that way. Um, and really, today's text, the preacher's point is none of that would be possible unless the Son of God become a human. None of that would be possible unless Jesus becomes a human. Um, that's what I want to unpack this morning. The eternal Son of God became a human. This we call the incarnation. Uh, this is John 1, this word that was in the beginning that was with God, that was God, became flesh and, and dwelt among us. Um, remember, the, the, he's shifting his focus off of the divine glory of the Son of God, the one who speaks creation into being, sustains it by his power, sits at the right hand of God. He's shifting now to focus on the humanity of this person, the, the humiliation of this person. Um, I, I want you to see this. He's shifting from Jesus being superior or above the angels, to Jesus being for a little while lower than them. Shifting from uh, the focus being on uh, the Son sitting at the right hand of God, from Him being anointed above His companions, that's chapter 1, verse 9, to, to Jesus now being in the midst of the congregation, in chapter 2, verse 12. From the one being uh, speaking creation into being, upholding the universe by His power, the radiance of God's glory, the exact embodiment of God's nature, shifting from that focus to being on him partaking human flesh and blood, him, him becoming like humans in every respect, him even experiencing death, which is amazing. The one, the, the source of all life, dying. Um, the one who rules and reigns forever, the one whose years will have no end, chapter 1 says. He enters our exact human experience. That's the main focus, is the incarnation and the suffering of Jesus and why that eternal Son of God became human and endured death. Um, it, we, the way we look at this letter is we hey, we'll look at this section this week. Next week, we'll look at this section. We, there's, you kind of lose the flow of the, the letter, which a lot of people think is actually a sermon. Um, it's, you, you lose the... The, the dramatic shift from speaking on the divine glory to speaking on the humanity and the humiliation. It would have been this, this 
this abrupt shift of focus. It's noticeable, it's shocking for the audience, and, and it should be for us as well. I don't know if you're like me, but anytime we talk about the incarnation, uh, I do get excited because it's, you know, Advent and Christmas, and uh, there's something fun about thinking and talking about the mind-boggling things in Scripture, the things that our finite minds can hardly grasp. Um, I don't know if anyone feels that way, but um, alongside of that, I also squirm a little bit. Um, I don't know if you, you feel that. You get a little uncomfortable when we talk about the humanity of Jesus. That, that this Jesus who right now is sitting at the right hand on the throne in majesty on high, he's a human like you. Um, he, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. Um, it's important that we talk about that. We can be quick to defend Christ's deity that he's God, and we should defend that. That's a good thing. But it's also important that we talk about the fact that the Son of God became a human, that Jesus is a human like you and me, and Jesus always will be a human with a human body, glorified. But I love how Max Licato, uh, he captures this awkwardness of God being human in his book, God Came Near. Let me read you a section of it. My mom used to read this at Christmas every, every year. He wrote, angels watched as Mary changed God's nappy. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played with him in the street and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for certain He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds, burped, had body odor. his His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much, e- much easier to keep his humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. So awkwardness to that feels, should we be saying these things? But Jesus is as much human as he is God. He's as much human as you are. Something about that makes me squirm a little. It's a little bit uncomfortable. What also makes people squirm is this idea of the Son of God, the one who spoke creation into being, who upholds the universe with his power, this divine, majestic person suffering in death. And this was a scandalous idea in the first century world, this idea of the crucified Lord Um, In 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke about the cross being a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God called, it's the power of God, it's the wisdom of God. Um, So it's it's absurd in a way, it's foolishness in a way, which I I think is why the author tells us in verse 10, he says it was fitting that he does this. In, In other words, the author is saying that what God has done in the suffering of Jesus is completely in line with what we know about his character and his purposes. 
It may seem foolish or absurd to you and me, but, but it's actually completely in line with God's character, with, with, with his purposes. In verse 10, he says, for it was fitting. The word literally means it was appropriate. It, it was suitable that he, for whom, by all, uh, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing mon- many sons to glory should make the founder of, the sav- of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in that verse, there's, there's three parties in that verse. So firstly, there's, there's he. Um, there's, uh, it was fitting that he, he's speaking about God the Father there, that he should um, uh, uh, brings many sons to glory. The sons, that's us. That's the people of God. Uh, he redeems us. He brings us to glory. He, he brings us to the, the heavenly realm, which we will experience his, his presence perfectly. We will experience uh, the fullness of Psalm 8. And then there's also the, the founder of their salvation. That's Jesus he's speaking about, who is made perfect through suffering. I'll explain what that means in a second, but we may find it foolish or absurd, but, but it's actually fitting. It's appropriate. It makes sense to God because it's in line with his character of love and, and, and his purposes of bringing many children to glory. It was fitting. Um, what an... What an what an answer to the questions that we have sometimes. This question you ask, like, why does God, why did the Father have to send the Son to become a human? Why did God require that Jesus suffer as he did? Why, in order to bring me to glory, did Jesus have to endure the shame and the horror of suffering on the cross? There's, a, there's good theological answers to those questions, but the answer we're given here is because it was fitting. Because it was, it's, it's in perfect harmony with God's nature and his character. There's nothing illogical or absurd or immoral or unsavory about the way God saved you and me, namely through the sufferings of his son, Jesus Christ. And I love the way he, makes, he points out who God is here. Who find, this God who finds it fitting, who finds it appropriate um, is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So this is the creator of the universe that finds this fitting. The, the, the one who is the origin of all things and the, and the goal of all things. Don't you think he knows what's best? Like he knows what's, what's most fitting and most appropriate. It's fitting that Jesus, the founder of our salvation, be perfected through suffering. What does that mean? Um, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect and then he became perfect. So we, it, this was similar to where um, Jesus was bestowed the name, the, the Son of God. It doesn't mean he wasn't the Son and then he became the Son. He, it's, it's the same thing here. It's not that Jesus lived uh, a sinless life and then he was made perfect. That, that wouldn't make any sense in this uh, sacrificial system. Jesus had to be perfect. He had to live a sinless life in order to be that spotless sacrifice in order to, to make purification for sins. What that word perfect means, is, it, it literally means to, to complete or, or to finish, to, to reach the end of something. It's like to, to complete a course. Um, for Jesus to be made perfect through suffering, it means he has proved himself to be adequate because of his full obedience to his mission of death on a cross. For Jesus to be perfect through suffering means he has proved himself to be adequate because of his full obedience to his mission of death on a cross. So remember Philippians 2, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient uh, 
to the point of cross, uh, but to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, he is, it means he has proved himself to be obedient. He's proved himself to be our leader in, 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 of our salvation. It's through his sufferings, through his death on the cross, he's proved himself to be obedient in a way that you and I never could. It's why he's able to be called the founder of our salvation in that verse. That, that word literally means our leader or, or the one who, he, he's the trailblazer. He's the champion in that way. Uh, Jesus is the leader or the champion of our salvation because he was obedient in a way that you and I never could. He, 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 he finished obediently in a way that you and I never could. And, and remember, this seems uh, elementary to us sometimes, but Jesus is the only one who that could be said of, that he is the founder of our salvation. Um, no other human can, can be said uh, to be that. Um, no, certainly no other angel. Only Jesus is the, the pioneer or the leader that has blazed a trail for us through death and resurrection. Jesus leads the way for us. It means we will eventually get to glory because he has already gone before us. There's no other way except for him leading the way for us. Does that make sense? And, and all of this, it leads the preacher to affirm this profound and deeply intimate solidarity between Jesus and us. So if, uh, I don't have set uh, points here, but point one is Jesus is our pioneer. He's our, our leader, our trailblazer into glory. Point two is Jesus has an intimate solidarity with his people. Look at verses 11 and 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. And those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, and some commentators think that one source is God the Father, that Jesus and Christians are both out of God, therefore he calls us family. That's a reasonable answer. Some commentators think that he's referring to Abraham. I tend to think this because he's, the context is he's speaking about Jesus' humanity and his shared human nature between Jesus and us. The point is the same no matter what, that the solidarity between Jesus and us, it results in graciousness on Christ's part, that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. He's not ashamed to call you his family. I think it's almost un unthinkable, isn't it? That this, this glorious divine son of God, the one who spoke creation out of nothing, is not ashamed to call me his brother. I know me. <laughs> I, I know how wretched I can be. I am. I know where my mind and my actions go when no one else is around. And the creator of the universe comes low to be able to call me proudly his brother. Maybe that's the message you need to hear this morning. Um, the, the people this letter were, were, was written to, they were experiencing shame and humiliation because of their devotion 
to Jesus as this crucified Messiah. They suffered rejection from their friends, certainly rejection from their family, who are now ashamed of them. But he's saying Jesus is happy to be identified with them. Maybe that's the message you need to hear this morning, that you do not bring shame to Jesus. And all of your sinfulness and your, and your, your worst moments, your dirtiest moments, Jesus proudly calls you his brother and his sister. He's not ashamed of you. It's an amazing piece of scripture. Um, he goes on and he, he, he quotes three Old Testament passages. Um, we don't have time to go into them all, but um, that, that first one in verse 12, he's quoting Psalm 22. The second two are from Isaiah 8. You can look those later if you want, but that Psalm 22, it's amazing because he's quoting these as if they're coming out of the mouth of Jesus, as if Jesus is saying these things. And, 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 and uh, verse 12, this is Jesus saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, my sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is the Son of God who sits at the right hand of God, who's anointed above his companions, now standing in the midst of the congregation in the middle of his brothers and sisters, telling them of the name of the Father, singing praises with them. What a picture. The point of today's passage is quite simple. It's he came down to bring us up. Pretty simple to remember. He came down to bring us up. The focus here is on the, the solidarity that exists between Jesus and us. So Jesus, the divine Son of God, came low, he took on human flesh and blood to be like us, to relate to us, in order to bring us to saving glory. He came down in order to bring us up. The next couple of verses build on this. And it's not just that he, he came to, in order to be able to call us his family, his brothers and sisters. It's much, much more than that. In verse 14, Essentially, the author says, here's the reason for the incarnation. Here's why Jesus became a human. Verse 14, read that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the purpose of the incarnation. The, the Son of God becoming human, he himself partaking flesh and blood, because that's what we are. In other words, he becoming like us. The purpose of that, the author says, is that, th is that through death he might destroy Satan and deliver you from slavery. Simply put, Jesus came to die. Jesus became human so that he can die thereby destroying Satan and delivering us from the slavery into glory, blazing that, that path for us. Again, he came down to bring us up. Jesus came to save us, to lead us out of slavery. Do you see how for his, his audience, they're thinking, wow, this is a better Exodus story. Jesus is the better Moses. And the way he, he leads us out of slavery, the way to do that was to destroy the one who has the power of death, that's Satan. And the only way to destroy him would be through death. 
would be a victory in death. And that's what Jesus does. Remember verse 10, Jesus is the founder. He's the leader of our salvation. So he's the one who, who successfully completes the race. He, he's the one who comes and lives the perfect life that you and I never could, perfectly obedient to the Father, all the way to his obedience to his death on the cross, dying the death that he did not deserve, but that you and I deserved, and, and, and the, thereby destroying Satan through his death on the cross. The outcome of that is all of us who, all of our lives, have been held in slavery by our fear to death, have been liberated, been set free from that fear of death. George Guthrie says, a believer's fear of death no longer paralyzes and enslaves because Jesus has disabled death's master. As our champion, he has stormed the very gates of the enemy and laid hold of his stronghold, opening wide the doors of our captivity and pointing us to the path of freedom. That's, that's the point of the incarnation. Jesus came to die. Um, I was tempted to have a sing, Hark the Herald Angels sing, maybe a wee bit too early. Can't wait. But that, that message is this message. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He came down to bring us up. Born that men no more may die. The only way the son could accomplish that task was to die himself. And the only way for him to die well, was to become a human. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Let's look at the rest of the passage verse, from verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So I think he's wrapping up his comments on angels here. It's not the angels that he comes to help. If it was, then he would become an angel. He'd take on whatever they're um, made up of. But it's not. It's, he's, he's, he's come to help the offspring of Abraham. He's come to help the people of God. That's us. Therefore, or because he came to help us humans, he had to be, make like, he had to be made like us in every respect. So again, he's fully God, but also he's fully human in every way. And later in this letter, the author will, will call him the sympathetic high priest. That, that Jesus actually knows fully. He knows in every respect what it's like to be one of us, because he is one of us. He knows our weakness. He knows the temptation. He, the Son of God, had to become like us in every respect to experience what we experience so that he could become that merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And this theme of Jesus being this high priest, this better high priest, it's going to be this theme for most of the book. We will get into that. I'm not going to get too deep into it this morning. The main point I want you to see from this text is in order for him to be that high priest, he had to become a human. He had to take on our flesh and blood in order to make propitiation for our sins. Um, that's a big word. We try not to use like Christian lingo up here, um, but we do use Bible words. So it's a word that you need to understand what propitiation means. 
Propitiation means to atone for sins, to, to appease or to turn away the wrath of God. So this is the, this is the job of the priest in the Old Testament um, in the temple, is to, uh, to atone for the sins of the people, to, to turn away the wrath of God. So the, we are sinful. God is a white-hot, holy God. We can't be in his presence and not die because of our sinfulness. So in order for us to be in his presence, the priest would make a sacrifice. He would, he would sacrifice a lamb or a goat or a bull, and he would sprinkle the blood of that innocent animal onto the mercy seat. So the mercy seat is essentially the altar in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God's presence was. And by offering these sacrifices, by sprinkling the blood of this innocent animal, he was atoning for the sins of the people. He was, he was turning away the wrath of God. We'll get into more, to that, into more of that. We'll explain more in a bit. But the point here is that Jesus had to become a human in order to do that in order to be that high priest, in order to make propitiation for our sins. He had to come down, become human like you and me, be perfected in his suffering, prove his obedience and his sinlessness in order to be that perfect and final high priest. Remember the, 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 the priest in the temple, they didn't have anywhere to sit because they, they stood. Their, their job was never done. There was more atoning to do, more sins to be more sacrifices to be made. Jesus is the final high priest. He makes one sacrifice, once and for all. He atones for sins once. He, he, he turns away the wrath of God forever, thereby leading the way, opening the way for us to be into glory. And Jesus had to become a human in order to lead us to salvation. He, he, he blazes the trail before us. He suffers and dies and then he is crowned with glory. We saw that last week. First comes suffering and then comes glory. And then that's our path as well. There's this false idea that because Christ died for you and you, you, you're counted as righteous, then life is great, that things will go well for you, that you don't suffer anymore. That's not a biblical truth. We follow our leader's path into suffering, but then into glory. That path to glory, that, that difficult path, that path that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount has a narrow gate. Few will find it. The, the way is hard, but it leads to life. It leads to glory. This text shows us that Jesus not only goes before us, he also helps us along the way. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is so important. So Jesus not only is the champion, he doesn't just blaze that trail to glory and then say, good luck on the way, see you at the end. No, he helps us along the way. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to, to navigate the path. He, doesn't, he didn't come just to make propitiation for your sins, just so you can be counted as righteous and then leave the rest up to us. No, he helps us along the way. Why does he do this? Because verse 18 tells us he himself suffered when tempted. So again, he knows the temptation we face. That's why he helps us. And it's not just like, well, he's God, so he knows everything. 
kind of way? No, he knows it because he endured it himself. He knows firsthand how difficult that path is. He knows how lonely life can be. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to be afraid, to feel weak, to be rejected and hated by others. He knows that deeply and personally. He became one of us. He suffered just like us when he was tempted. Did it perfectly so that he's able to help us. How does he help us? In, in many, many ways. I'll point out a few. Um, firstly, he helps us by removing our fear. Verse 15 tells us we were subject to slavery through fear of death, but that he's delivered us from that. So he's, he's freed us from that bondage through his death. This is important. Because of Christ's victory over death, we no longer need to fear. Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid anymore. Peace be with you. Look to me. Remember the cross. Whenever you're tempted to fear again, there's no need to fear because I've dealt with that. I've defeated death. I've disabled death's master. Paul talks about there being no more sting in death. Secondly, he helps us by showing us mercy. Verse 17, he's, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So once and for all, in his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus has showed us mercy. He's this merciful high priest. But there's this ongoing aspect to that as well. Right now, he's sitting on the right hand of God, and he's on your side. He, he, he's, he's for you. He said, I'm your brother, and I'm not ashamed about that. He's sitting on the throne in human form, and he is delighted to proclaim you as his brother or his sister. He's saying, there's Stuart. That's my brother. I'm delighted in him. There's Caroline. That's my sister. I'm delighted in her. That's helpful. If you're, if you're anything like me, my sin, my, my inability to be faithful to Jesus can be paralyzing, can be demoralizing, can weigh you down. You ever feel that way? Frustration with your weakness, with your messiness. Listen to me, Jesus is able to help you when you are tempted because he declares to you clearly and unmistakably because of his work, you are forgiven. You are not guilty. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is one of those here but not yet realities. When God looks at you now, he sees Jesus, sees Christ's righteousness, that was, that was transferred to you on the cross. He doesn't see your sin. He sees you as righteous. But there's this working of that out as well. There's this, there's this ongoing sanctification. Jesus is working to sanctify you. And you're not perfect. You, you, you will mess up. You will sin. And when you do, though, don't let guilt overwhelm you. You have been forgiven 
Jesus is merciful to you. He came down to help us up. Thirdly, Jesus helps us by being faithful. This is good. That word faithful means reliable, certain, trustworthy. It also means enduring. So a faithful high priest is an enduring in his faithfulness. You can't be considered faithful if you're only helpful once. You have to endure, he endures in his helpfulness. Jesus is faithful like no one else can be. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So in your temptation, God is faithful to you. It's not all about you. It's about him and his faithfulness to you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, Paul's talking about this sanctification process, but he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So in your process of becoming more like Jesus, he's the one who is faithful and is doing this in you. Jesus is faithful to us. We know he is faithful to us because he has proven it in his suffering and his death. He's able to help you because he's a faithful high priest. And we could, we could sit here for hours. We could sit here all day and talk about the ways Jesus helps us. Um, here's, here's three more that are obvious that you should be leaning into. Um, Jesus helps us because he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. So John 14, he calls the Holy Spirit the helper that will be with us forever. Imagine that. God in you, his Holy Spirit dwelling in you, leading you, speaking to you, guiding you, convicting you, encouraging you, teaching us. What a help. Secondly, Jesus helps us by giving us his word. So Matthew 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil in, 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 the, in the desert, he quotes, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. It's like, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, bre every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So one of our, one of our uh, cultures that we want to create here is, is a culture of, of the word dwelling among us. We believe that, that this is the primary way God reveals himself to us. What a, what a help. And Jesus helps us by giving us his body, his people, Paul says in Romans 12 uh, that, that we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. It means we now belong to one another. He says we're to love, love one another with a brotherly affection. He's saying the people in this room are to love one another with a love that's reserved for blood brothers and sisters. This is your family for all eternity. All these one another's in Scripture. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Build up one another. Three obvious ways that Jesus helps us on the path to glory. He gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. He gives us his word. He gives us a family to be part of. The question is, how seriously do you take that help? How often do you pray, Lord, help me, but you're... You're rarely spending time in God's word. You're, you're occasionally in fellowship with God's people. You hardly ever experience stillness and solitude in order to listen to the Holy Spirit, his guidance, and to practice the presence of Jesus. Jesus helps us. 
We need to lean into that help. I think the temptation that he's speaking about in verse 18 is this temptation to neglect the great salvation, this, this temptation to, to drift away. So he begins this section saying, pay much closer attention. Lean into that help lest we drift away. And it's so important. Uh, Church Jesus is able to help us because he is our leader, because he is our human brother, and because he is our merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, Let's stand and pray. Uh, Just close your eyes, and I want you to answer this question to yourself. Uh, What are you struggling with today? What pain are you experiencing? Jesus knows that struggle. Jesus knows that pain. Here's some more truths. Jesus knows what it's like to live in poverty. Jesus knows what it's like to live in obscurity. For 30 years, he lived in obscurity. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a parent. He knows what it's like to work for years a seemingly insignificant job. Jesus knows what it's like to be considered an outcast among his peers. Jesus knows what it's like to endure the depths of loneliness. He knows what it's like to experience the pain of being on a under unappreciated. Jesus felt the pain of being misunderstood, of having his motives constantly questioned, maligned, and misrepresented. Jesus felt the sting of slander. Jesus suffered rejection from his own family. He felt the pain of physical abuse. Jesus knows the terrible anguish of being abandoned and betrayed by his dearest friends. Jesus knows the pain of being abandoned, not simply by his friends and family, but also by God himself. No one knew this better than Jesus. But for him, the abandonment was real, No one felt the vacuum of God's absence like Jesus did. In his greatest hour of need, not even his heavenly Father was present. Of course, it wasn't for a lack of love, but because the Son had become sin. He laid on him the iniquity of us, and by his stripes we are healed. He knows our struggles. He's experienced them. 
He endured them perfectly. And because he did, he is able to help us through. Let me ask you this last question. What difference does it make whether Jesus is alive or not? And if he is alive, how could he possibly care and what could he possibly do? The text shows us that he most certainly is alive and he is alive to encourage you, to support you, to sympathize with you so that you will never face one moment of human existence alone without someone who has been where you are, faced what you faced, and feels what you feel. But better still, he lives to energize your soul, to empower your heart, to give you hope and grace and mercy and kindness and the promise of an eternity with him. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We pray that prayer so often, Lord, but Lord, let it sink into our hearts this morning. What you gave up, what you left to come down, to be with us, to be one of us, to experience temptation and struggle and pain and sorrow. Yet, to finish the race, to be obedient, to live a perfect life. And even though you've done that, you endured death on the cross for us. Wow. In order to set us free. Jesus, help us to, to live in that freedom, to be aware of the freedom. What we could accomplish if we no longer feared death. Lord, receive glory today and may this sink deep into our hearts and may it lead us to worship and may it lead us to fixing our eyes on you, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.